This morning we're continuing in our series in Luke's Gospel, The Coming of the King. Believe it or not, we only have two weeks left, this week and next week in Luke's Gospel, and then Rick Bartholomew will be preaching, then Shane Bartholomew, and then Jess back. So, got me for two more weeks. Fortunate, maybe, for you? I don't know. We'll see. Um, Well, we're continuing today. Three weeks ago, we left off in Luke's Gospel. We looked at the baptism of Jesus, a couple short verses in Luke's Gospel, and then that big genealogy to follow. We talked about that and the significance of that. And so now we're just moving on to the next narrative section, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness by Satan. Um, The text is Luke 4, 1 through 15. I'll be reading out of the ESV. So would you please follow along with me as I read from the text. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all the authority, all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord, your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Let me pray. Father, I ask that by the Spirit, Lord, that you would open our eyes to this section of Scripture this morning. That uh, for those of us who need encouragement, you would do so. For those of us who need conviction, that you would do so through your word. Your word is able to go forth and accomplish all of these things just as you have willed. And Father, we also pray that for all of us, we would be given wisdom and understanding into this text. And that we would grow in maturity and in the wisdom of Christ. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, one of my favorite all-time films is the movie The Hunt for Red October. I'm sure a lot of you have probably seen that film. Well, if you're unfamiliar with the premise, let me give you a quick rundown. It takes place during the latter years of the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. And the premise of the movie is that there's a seasoned Soviet commander, a nuclear submarine commander named Marco Ramius, who's played by Sean Connery. And he sets out on this brand new nuclear-powered sub that just got commissioned by the Soviet government, and he sets out with his crew and his other officers on their, on their first mission, on the first mission of this submarine. But unbeknownst to his crew or the Soviet government, or even the United States at first, he and his other officers on the submarine 
are intending to defect to the United States. As the film progresses, the Soviet Union finally figures out what this submarine commander is up to, and so does the United States. And so then the entire movie becomes this cat-and-mouse game of the Soviet Union sending their entire fleet to try to hunt down and and destroy this nuclear-powered submarine, while the United States undertakes this clandestine operation headed by CIA officer Jack Ryan, played by Alec Baldwin, and without the Soviet Union knowing that the United States is assisting. Well, a lot of things happen, and then eventually the movie reaches its like final climactic scene, where the United States is able secretly to make contact with Marco Ramius and the submarine, the, the Soviet submarine, and the United States sends onto the submarine a few uh, of their officers together with CIA official Jack Ryan. And so they, they climb down into the Soviet submarine, they walk onto the bridge, and then there's like this, this scene where the U.S. has like four or five of their commanders with CIA official Jack Ryan, and they're standing against four or five of the Soviet commanders and Marco Ramius and Sean Connery's character, and they're just sizing each other up for a moment. Nobody's saying anything. They're just looking at each other. Sean Sean Connery's character, he utters something in Russian to one of his fellow comrades, and he sees that Alec Baldwin's character, Jack Ryan on the American side, he picks up on it. So Sean Connery, he turns to Alec Baldwin's character and says to him in Russian, I'll do my best Sean Connery, you speak Russian? And and Alec Baldwin's character responds, he says, it's wise to know the ways of one's adversaries. Wouldn't you agree? Sean Connery's character responds, it is. (laughs) Well, this scene, and in particular, this short conversation between Marco Ramius and Jack Ryan really sums up the cat and mouse game being played throughout the entire movie. You see, the United States is trying to determine from the very start from the very outset, what their adversary, the Soviet Union, is up to. And the way they piece everything together, headed by CIA official Jack Ryan, is by a deep knowledge of Soviet Soviet submarine tactics, a deep knowledge of the Soviet submarine equipment, and even a deep knowledge of the Soviet commander's biography, of Marco Ramius's biography. You see, in order to figure out what the Soviet Union is up to and what this crew is up to, The Americans have to know intimately well their adversary. They have to know their adversary intimately well. And this brings us to our text this morning, where we are given insight into our adversary, Satan. Now, as a quick aside, whenever we talk about Satan in the Christian life, there are two errors that we should generally try to avoid. On the one hand, there's a tendency among many Christians to dismiss the idea of Satan altogether as the product of religious hysteria. In fact, there was a survey conducted by the Barna Group roughly seven years ago that concluded only 26% of professing Christians agree that Satan is a living being, not merely a symbol of evil. That tells us that 74% of professing Christians say that Satan is merely a symbol of evil, not not a living being. But I think scripture is pretty clear that he's more than just a symbol of evil. But on the other hand, the opposite error that we're prone to or that we could fall into is giving too much credit to Satan, calling everything that might go wrong in our lives or in the world a satanic attack. And oftentimes, such a a sentiment might be an unexpressed sentiment uh, behind that, driving that, might be the desire to um, 
to, to not, not call our sin what it is, to not take accountability for our sin. If we call everything a satanic attack, then, uh, then the blame doesn't rest on us all that, all that much. So these are two different extremes that we could fall into. Well, for many centuries, and I think this is helpful, the church has defined three sworn enemies. Heidelberg Catechism, for instance, says that we have three sworn enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and that these three sworn enemies do not, seek to, do not cease to attack us. Now, admittedly, there's overlap between these three, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and when we're, when we're being confronted with a temptation or when we're being confronted with a lie, it's not always clear who exactly the culprit behind that lie is. And it's not necessarily that important to say who the culprit is, but what is of vital importance. Whether we call the culprit the world, the flesh, or the devil, the important point is that we understand the nature of the lies that these adversaries are throwing at us. And it's in this passage this morning, in the context of Jesus' encounter with Satan, where we're given a unique window into how Jesus not only confronts Satan, but how he exposes and lays bare the DNA of a lie. So what I want us to see today from this text is that because Jesus exposes Satan, we are given insight into the DNA of a lie. And specifically, we'll see three things about a lie in this text. We'll see the nature of a lie, the method of a lie, and the counter to a lie. Nature, method, and counter. So first, Jesus in our text exposes the nature of a lie. Now, to end, to, towards the end of this sermon, we'll talk about the theological significance of why Jesus is in the wilderness. Why does he, why is he compelled, why does the Holy Spirit compel him to enter, go into the wilderness for 40 days? We'll talk about the theological significance of that shortly. But for now, it's important to note that nothing Jesus does, not even this journey into the wilderness and subsequent fast, is undertaken autonomously. The scripture tells us right at the outset that Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit, and he's led into the wilderness by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Jesus is following here his Father's will by the guidance and the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember all the way back in Luke chapter 2, verse 49, when we saw Jesus in the temple, and he declares that declaration, I must be in my Father's house. We said when we talked about that passage that Jesus is decla- that, that passage not only foreshadows how Jesus is going to be in the temple later in Luke's gospel, but it's also a statement that everything Jesus does is driven by the will and the authority of the Father. And this background, I think, is important because when Satan comes onto the scene, his goal in all of these lies and all of these temptations is to drive a wedge in Jesus' relationship with the Father by calling into question things like the Father's character, the Father's plan, and even, as we'll see, the Father's creative design. And friends, this is the nature of a lie. This is what a lie is. At its core, it tells us that there's something about God, whether it's, again, his character, his plan, his creative design, something about God that can't be trusted or that's somehow flawed or even unknowable and that will simply do better when we go our own way and we create meaning and purpose for ourselves. So let's look at each of these temptations to see what exactly Satan attacks about God. Well, in the first temptation, verses 3 and 4, Satan begins his assault by undermining God's goodness and protection. Now, the first temptation seems innocent enough. Jesus is hungry. 
He's been fasting for 40 days, right? I think we would all be hungry if we fasted for 40 days. And he certainly has the power to turn a stone into bread. In Luke chapter 9, for instance, Jesus multiplies bread at the feeding of the 5,000. He can certainly do it. But lurking behind Satan's challenge to Jesus to turn this stone into bread is the accusation that God has failed to provide and protect for his son. Satan is essentially saying to Jesus in this first temptation, God's not going to look out for you. He's not looking out for you because he's not ultimately working in your favor because he's not good. So Jesus, you, you need to look out for yourself. That's essentially what Satan is saying here. And this is obviously a direct assault on what God the Father had already declared about his son. Remember back in Luke 3.22 at Jesus' baptism, God the Father, he speaks and he says, this is my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. But now Satan attempts to drive a wedge in that relationship by implicitly calling into question whether that declaration from chapter 3 was even true. And remember, this is Satan's tactic in the garden too, right? He calls into question whether what God said was actually true. But Satan's first temptation here runs even deeper than questioning the character of God or the plan of God. Satan also challenges God's fundamental creative design of humans. You see, when Jesus responds to Satan with the words from Deuteronomy 8.3, man shall not live by bread alone, Jesus calls out Satan's problematic assumption about what a person fundamentally is. Specifically, Satan's assumption is that humans are physical creatures only and that the satisfaction of our physical needs or desires is what should be our sole prerogative. You see, Satan's assumption is predicated on the philosophical idea of naturalism, metaphysical naturalism. You see, naturalism is a system of thought that's reared its head in various points in the history of philosophy, and it's especially prominent today in many circles. And its fundamental assertion is that everything, every explanation, is susceptible to a natural or physical account. And in fact, they would say, a naturalist would say that there's nothing that the sciences don't have access to. As it relates to the human person, a naturalist would say that a human has no soul and that the human person is really only comprised of a, a cluster of physiological processes alone. So the body and its satisfaction is what's most important. But if, there, if naturalism is, again, one extreme on the spectrum, there's an equally opposite extreme we need to avoid that goes by the name of Gnosticism. Sure, it could go by the names of many things, but Gnosticism being one of them. Now, Gnosticism was a heresy in the early church, especially in the second and third centuries of the early church, uh, that a, a number of early church writers have fought against. And it's rather complicated to explain as there were many forms of Gnosticism in early church history. But the gist of Gnostic thought is that the body is simply a shackle for the soul that we ultimately look forward to being freed from. In other words, a Gnostic would say that the natural world, including the body, <clears throat> is bad, it's evil, and so by acquiring secret, esoteric knowledge, we begin to be freed from the body. That's the ultimate goal, is to be freed from this shackle for the soul. Now, Gnosticism in its formal accounts was, uh, was pretty well taken care of after a few centuries in the early church, but the underlying rationale that the soul 
is what defines a person. That's, that's all that a person is, is his or her soul, is still a prominent belief today in more New Age spirituality and even among some Christians. Now, the point here is that neither naturalism nor Gnosticism, two different extremes, neither, or the point is that both of those play into Satan's reductionistic reasoning, and both can account for the full weight and value of a human person, of who God created us to be. Either the body is everything, or the body is nothing. And ironically, in both accounts, the unadulterated satisfaction of the body is what reigns supreme. So Jesus' response to Satan in our text is a counter to both naturalistic assumptions and Gnostic assumptions by emphasizing that the human person cannot be reduced to either a cluster of physiological responses nor to a soul that's trying to, be, that's trying to fight to be freed from the shackle of a body. The human person created by God is so much more complex so much more beautiful and so much, value, so much more valuable than Satan's reductionistic reasoning allows for. Friends, as, as the psalmist declares, we are fearfully and wonderfully made creatures. And that doesn't just mean that we're creatures who have all of these fascinating physiological responses. That's part of it, and that's definitely true. But we're also creatures, as St. Augustine said, who are restless until we find our rest in the triune God. We were, meant, we were made as spiritual creatures also, who are meant to be living beings in communion with our triune God. We're physical creatures with real desires and hopes and dreams and cognition and ambitions and emotions. And we're spiritual creatures who are designed to find ourselves in communion with our triune God. And both aspects here are working together. And it's part and parcel of what it means to be a human being. And to neglect either of those is to fail to live in accordance with who we were created to be. So in this first temptation... It reveals not only that the nature of a lie attacks the plan of God and the character of God, the nature of a lie attacks the fundamental design of God, namely, in this case, what a human person fundamentally is. Well, proceeding to the second temptation now, Satan throws out, it seems, the offer of a lifetime. He promises to give Jesus all the kingdoms of the world if only Jesus would bow down to Satan's authority. But such an offer strikes at the very core, the very heart of worship. Remember the Shema, which is Israel's central confession, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6, says that Israel is to have one God. And Jesus responds accordingly in Luke 4, 8. The Lord alone is to be worshipped and served. But let's focus on for a second on what exactly Satan is doing here. Satan's offer isn't a bad offer, objectively speaking. In fact, it was an Old Testament expectation in Psalm 2.8, among other texts, that the Messiah would rule over the nations. The Lord himself would give the nations and the kingdoms of the earth to the Messiah to reign over. So objectively speaking, Satan's offer isn't a bad offer. The problem, though, is what comes after the offer, the condition to bow down and worship Satan. So with that in mind, Satan is essentially saying in this second temptation, you know what, Jesus, it doesn't seem to me like God is going to carry through on his promises to give the nations to you. So try me out. Maybe I can be trusted to deliver. The issue in the second temptation isn't whether or not Jesus 
would be given the nations and the kingdoms of the world to rule over, but who the dispenser of power would be. Would it be God or would it be Satan? And what voice would Jesus ultimately listen to for the nations? Would it be God or would it be Satan? As this temptation reveals, and we'll tackle this a lot more in the second point too, a lie places our gaze so much on a good thing that the giver becomes irrelevant so long as we get that good thing. And that's essentially what, Jesus, what Satan is calling Jesus to do in this temptation. And then we reach the third temptation, where Satan assaults God's care for a son. Satan, he takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, the place where one would go to be near God. If ever there was a place for God to act for his son, it would be at this temple, at the temple, so Satan's reasoning goes. Now, if Jesus would have obliged Satan's request, God would have pretty much probably felt obliged to rescue him. Uh, But Jesus would essentially be saying, if he would hypothetically have obliged Satan at this point, he would effectively be saying, I do not think, God, you will take care of me as son. So to be sure, I'm going to put you in a situation where you must take care of me now and on my own terms. A lie tells us that our plan and timing is central. And when God doesn't conform to our plan and timing, so the accusation goes, that there's something wrong with him. And we end up believing that he's not a good God. In other words, a lie tries to convince us so much of our wisdom and rightness. There's no room with a lie for mystery. There's no room for uncertainty or even suffering in a lie, all of which are a central part of God's plan for our lives. So as we look back through each one of these temptations then, we find that each is ultimately an attempt to sever Jesus from his father by attacking something about God. Again, whether it's his plan, his character, or his creative design. And this is the nature of a lie. This is the goal of a lie. Whether it's from the world, the flesh, or the devil, it's an attempt to draw us away from communion with God by telling us there's something about him or his word that can't be trusted, so then we have to take matters into our own hand. That's the nature of a lie. Well, then this leads to our second point. Second, Jesus exposes in our text the method or the tactics of a lie. The tactics Satan employs, I think we can tell right off the bat, are much more seductive than merely saying, God is a liar, he's not to be trusted, so follow me. No, they're much more seductive than that. In fact, Satan cloaks his temptations in carefully crafted garb, and that's exactly how lies work, which makes them so attractive. In the second century AD, there was a bishop in the church of Leon by the name of Irenaeus, St. Irenaeus of Leon. Some of you may have heard that name before. St. Irenaeus was a prolific theologian. He wrote a lot of great things, and one of his most popular work is a work entitled Against Heresies. That's the English title for it, Against Heresies. And this work is an attack on, remember we talked about Gnosticism a few moments ago. It's an attack on a sect of Gnosticism called Valentinianism. Now, it's not important to know what exactly that is. Just watch Star Wars. I'm told that uh, George Lucas actually read some of the Gnostic texts when creating and fashioning the whole force and all those. I like Star Wars, but it's uh, Gnostic undertones, if you're curious. Well, anyway, in the preface to Irenaeus's work against heresies, he makes the broad comment that a lie is never presented in raw form, but it's often deceptively cloaked in other garb. Let me read you what Irenaeus writes. He says, Error indeed is never set forth in its naked deformity, lest thus being exposed, 
It should at once be detected, but it is carefully decked out in an attractive dress, so as by its outward form to make it appear to the inexperienced more true than the truth itself. And as Irenaeus continues in his work against against heresies, he shows some concrete examples of how that plays itself out within the Valentinian sect. Well, friends, this is the method of a lie that Satan employs in the confrontation with Jesus. In the final temptation, for instance, Satan must have realized that he was bested by Jesus the previous two times. Remember, Satan asks Jesus to do something in the first two temptations, and Jesus responds, well, it's written in Scripture this. It's written in Scripture this. And so Satan's logic goes, well, I've been bested by Scripture two times, so let me now employ Scripture against Jesus. And so he attempts to employ the same methodology, carefully cloaking his final temptation in the garb of Scripture. Satan apparently knows Scripture, which is an unsettling thought, although he doesn't, appear, he doesn't particularly use it well. And, you know, James tells us that, that the devils, they actually know doctrine too, right? They know that God is one. That should be an unsettling thought too. But that should also be a challenge to us. Do we know our scriptures well enough to call a foul? You know, it's not only important to know what the scriptures say, but do we also know how to use the scriptures? We all need teachers and we all need the wisdom that's been handed down to us through the wisdom of sage counsel and the wisdom of other teachers in order to humbly and effectively use scripture well. After all, autonomy is central to Satan's temptations in this text. We should never pursue the task of understanding what the scriptures say and how they say it in an autonomous way. Well, another tactic that Satan employs is to promise something that he ultimately can't deliver on. In the second temptation, for instance, Satan attempts to persuade Jesus to false worship, to idol worship, by presenting to him the grandeur of all of the kingdoms of the world, which he says he can deliver on. Now, at best, this is a gross oversell. Scripture does present Satan elsewhere as yielding incredible power over the world, but in this case, Satan's making an offer he really can't come through with. But the hope, from Satan's perspective, is that Jesus would be so captivated by the kingdom of this world that he would be so wide-eyed and with excitement at what's before his face that he would simply drop everything and say, yes, I want those kingdoms of the world. But of course, not only is Jesus not going to do that, he's not going to participate in idol worship, but he must also know that Satan is making an offer he can't deliver on. But the challenge for us in this temptation is whether we're able to recognize an idol. We talk about idolatry a lot in the Christian faith when we talk about sin, and for good reason, because idolatry is the chief sin. For instance, the early church father Tertullian writes, the principal crime of the human race, the highest guilt charged upon the world, the whole procuring cause of judgment is idolatry. An idol is formed when we break the first commandment. You know, the first commandment, God tells us, you shall have no other gods before me. An idol is formed when we break that commandment. And although we don't break that commandment by bowing down to idols of wood or clay or stone, we do bow down to functional idols, such as success, or maybe our children, or comfort. And many of these idols that we give ourselves over to are good things. They're good, God-ordained things, but they're not ultimate things. And so we functionally worship idols when we turn these good things into ultimate things. 
We might take success, for instance, believing that climbing the ladder of success in our workplace is what will give us life and meaning and purpose. But ultimately, to lay such a burden on the idol of success will ultimately crush us because success can't deliver what we ultimately want it to deliver when we form and fashion that idol. It'll end up crushing us and even we might end up crushing others in our idol-making endeavors. But this is just one of the tactics of a lie. It holds before our eyes something good, something beautiful, something God-ordained, and then it twists that thing by calling us to make that thing into an ultimate thing, whatever it might be. And in the end, it can't deliver on what it promises, and it ends up crushing us. Well, this leads to our third point. Third, Jesus exposes the counter to a lie. So when we consider this narrative section, this this entire uh, narrative, the temptation of Jesus, in light of what just came before it, remember the genealogy that we read came right before it, and we said when we talked about the genealogy a few weeks ago that essentially what Luke is trying to do by painting uh, painting Jesus in this genealogy was to present him as the new Adam. Remember we saw the unique feature of that genealogy was that it went all the way back to Adam, and, and Luke was trying to say that Jesus is the new Adam. Well, if that was the declaration that Jesus is the new Adam, well, now we have that declared reality in picturesque form in our narrative today. We get to see this reality in action. Whereas Adam and Eve were swayed by Satan's tactics in the Garden of Eden, Jesus in our text isn't. And Jesus as one commentator notes, is at a severe disadvantage comparatively. One commentator writes that Jesus' situation contrasts with Adam's. Adam's, Adam had not fasted at all, while Jesus had suffered lack of food for 40 days. Adam could eat from any tree in the garden but one, while Jesus was denying himself food. Adam was in paradise, while Jesus was in the wilderness. But friends, Jesus is the counter to this lie. Because Jesus says no to himself when Adam and Eve said yes to themselves. And as a result of confirming that Jesus will not follow Satan's Satan's ways, that he'll follow God's plan, Jesus says yes to his people, which will eventually lead him to the cross. Returning to the second temptation for a second, when Satan tells Jesus in the second temptation that he's going to give him all of the kingdoms of the world, it, so that he, uh, he'll give him all the kingdoms of the world if only he would bow down and worship. Satan is here entreating Jesus to receive the gift, not only apart from the giver, but he's also entreating Jesus to receive the gift apart from God's plan, which includes the centrality of the cross. Phil Riken writes this, As the Son of God, Jesus had the right to receive the kingdom and power and the glory. It was his calling to be the king, and one day what Satan showed him would all be his. But how would he receive it? That was the question. God's way was for Jesus to suffer and to die for sinners, and only then to receive the kingdom. But Satan offered it to Jesus on the spot. He could have the ecstasy without the agony. The kingdom of this world could become the kingdom of Christ without the scorn, the scourging, the spitting, and the bloody crucifixion. Satan was tempting Jesus to seize the crown without suffering the cross. 
And this is also the effect of the final temptation, where Satan tells Jesus, he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple and says, throw yourself off. Of course God is going to rescue you. Of course he's going to save you. This temptation, as one commentator notes, has the effect of saying, of essentially Satan saying here, there should be no martyrs. Suffering should not have a place in the Christian life. And friends, this is perhaps a lie in its most potent form when it convinces us that suffering has no place in the Christian life. And if and when we suffer, because we're all going to suffer at some point, then there's something wrong with us or there's something wrong with God. In C.S. Lewis's work, The Screwtape Letters, Lewis paints for us the idea of suffering as Satan's greatest, as the the greatest temptation that Satan wields. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Screwtape Letters, it's a a fascinating work, a really good work by C.S. Lewis, where he writes from the perspective of a senior devil uh, named Screwtape, who's writing to a junior devil named Wormwood. And in these letters, Screwtape guides Wormwood along, giving him advice along the way on how to turn his human subject away from God. And in this letter, I mean, God is referred to as the enemy. So I'm going to read a quote. Keep in mind when I say the enemy, that's referring to our God because it's from Satan's perspective. So anyway, in one letter, Screwtape writes this to Wormwood. He says, do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon the universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished, and asks, why has he been forsaken and yet still obeys? You see, when we suffer, the goal of a lie is to convince us that we've been abandoned, that God has turned his back on us, that he no longer cares. But however we go about explaining suffering, friends, the cross is the biggest obstacle to thinking that God has abandoned his people. Regardless of how we explain suffering, it can't be because God doesn't love us because the cross definitely proves otherwise. Whatever the very real reasons why we might feel abandoned in our walk with Christ from time to time, the cross declares that we haven't been abandoned. It declares the reality that we haven't been abandoned despite how we feel. And friends, this tells us that our performance isn't the greatest obstacle to a lie Our cognition, our intellect isn't the greatest obstacle to a lie. Nothing else is the the biggest counter to a lie except the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the biggest counter to a lie, namely the lie that suffering has no place in the Christian life. The reason we can endure suffering with hope is because, as Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So to wrap up, <clears throat> do you know what a lie is? Do you know how to recognize it? Jesus in our passage this morning not only exposes the nature of a lie, but he tells us the lie's method, he tells us how a lie operates, and then he shows himself as the biggest counter to the lie, not our morality not our intellect. Jesus Christ and the cross is the greatest counter to a lie. And as a result, it's in Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit that we can see see a lie for what it is, call it out for what it is, and rest in the one who has overcome on our behalf. Let me pray.
Father, we thank you for who you are. Thank you that you have given us this picture of Jesus defeating the enemy, defeating our adversary, Satan. And I pray that as we rest in Jesus Christ, Lord, that you would show us by the Holy Spirit a lie, that you would help us call it for what it is as we rest in Christ, that you would surround us with a body of believers where the Holy Spirit is working among us, and that you would help us corporately together to identify lies in our own lives, to encourage one another with love, for you are the God who has loved us so deeply in Jesus Christ, and the cross proves that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.